0: Today's scripture reading comes from Mark chapter 14, verses 43 to 52. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. This is the word of God.
1: Mark chapter 14. Uh, we've been focusing uh, the last several weeks on narratives that lead up to Christ's arrest, Jesus' arrest, and uh, ultimately the cross. And This passage is where we get that famous phrase, the kiss of death. It's Judas' betrayal of intimacy, his betrayal of Jesus. And it's supposed to be the end of Jesus. It's supposed to be the end of Jesus' mission. And yet it ends up becoming Judas' end. The end of Judas' life. Why? In Matthew, Jesus teaches, Everyone who draws the sword will perish by the sword. Judas, he comes with the sword. What does that mean? Jesus isn't talking about physical swords here. He's talking about two realities. He's talking about two ways of looking at life. He's talking about two kingdoms, two sets of values. So we're going to go into three points today. One, Judas's reality. That's our reality. Two, Jesus' reality, Jesus' kingdom. Lastly, how do you get into Jesus' kingdom? How do you live out Jesus' reality? Judas' reality, which is our reality. Jesus' reality, which is the reality we want to live in. Lastly, how do you live in it? How do you get into it? First, we're going to look at Judas' reality. Uh, That's our reality. Verse 43, Judas appeared, and with him was a crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders, Judas, essentially, he expected a fight. He expected uh, an insurrection. He expected resistance. Otherwise, he wouldn't have arrived with all that. He didn't need to arrive with all that, clearly. And, And Jesus says, am I leading a rebellion that you come at me, that you come to me with swords and clubs? In other words, Judas, all these years, you don't get me. You don't understand me. In the Bible, swords, they represent kingdom authority. Swords represent the justice of the king. Swords represent the power of the king. Jesus, while he was on earth, he often taught about the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of the world. What's what's a kingdom? What is a kingdom? We live in a democratic state. What's a kingdom? A kingdom is a way of viewing order. It's a way of administering order. Whenever you have a new administration that comes in into the highest office in that country, what happens? The changes that come about through that new administration, it reverberates throughout the rest of the land. So where that kingdom spends its money, how it deals in foreign policy, social policies, how you handle justice, issues of justice, the priorities of that kingdom... These are the priorities. this is what we call the agenda. it's always driven by the values of that administration. In other words, each administration, when it comes in, it challenges every one of its citizens to redefine, to reorient what you value, what you love, what you hold at the top. And this passage shows us what's at the top of Judas's worldview, what's at the top of Judas's reality and really. It's going to show us what's at the top of the kingdom of the world. Oftentimes what is natural to us, our reality, and that is the sword. The sword is at the top. Power, wealth, education, influence, might, strength. Judas shows up with what? He shows up with the crowd. That's what we call social power, social currency. He shows up with swords and clubs. That's what you should call that military strength, force, might. He's sent from the chief priests, these people that he's armed with, sent from the chief priests. That's what we call the religious authority, religious power. He comes with the teachers of the law. He's, they're sent by the teachers of the law, the elders. That's the educated elite. That's the cultural elite in their day. And verse 44, he kisses Jesus. We said that was an act of independence, a betrayal of intimacy. But really what he's saying is, we are equals. I show up with all my entourage, we are on the same level. That's what he's saying. We measure up, might against might. Why do we come with swords and clubs? Look, if all you have is the world, if all you've got is the world, then you're always going to use wealth and politics, and military strength, and education, and your popularity, and your influence to get something done, or to justify doing something in your life, and it's always going to be a fight. Now, Judas, he comes armed because he was expecting a fight. He was expecting resistance. That's the natural way we believe we can get anything. That's the natural way that we believe we can get anywhere, for that matter. In a worldly kingdom, the sword is at the top. That's our reality. That's our worldview. Might makes right. You step over people. You avoid certain other people. You look down on certain people. you got to get in with the right people. That's how you get ahead. That's how you go far. We live in a time where swords are explicit in our world. Wars are being fought over what? Race. Wars are being fought over religion. Wars are being fought right now over politics. And we live... We live in the most overworked society that America has seen to date. Why? Because the sword is our reality. And Jesus, he rejects the sword. Verse 48 to 49, he says, am I leading a rebellion that you come at me with swords? Really, in the Greek, what he's asking is this. Do you view me as a violent terrorist? Am I a terrorist in your eyes? Because if you're coming at me with swords, you don't really understand who I am. All other revolutionaries, all other revolutions, they keep the same thing at the top. They keep the sword at the top. Power, might, wealth, politics, education, all other revolutionaries, all other kingdoms, they, they use musical chairs, really. It's just a set of musical chairs with people coming in and out, fighting to keep the same types of things up at the top, but not mine. That's not my revolution. That's not what my administration b- brings because the sword is not at the top of my agenda. You can't stop me with swords. That's your reality. That's Judas's reality. That's our reality. What's Jesus' reality? What's Jesus' kingdom based on? Throughout the Bible... Throughout the Gospels, Jesus talks about God's kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like this. The kingdom of God is like this. What are his values? And if you read in your call to worship, Luke chapter 6, that pretty much is a dissertation on Jesus' values. Blessed are the poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the hungry. Blessed are those who weep. Blessed are you when men exclude you or hate you. But woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well-fed. Woe to you who laugh now. Woe to you when all men speak well of you. Now, this collection of teachings is known as the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous collection of teachings of Jesus. And really what he's showing us is what the kingdom of heaven is like. The values of the kingdom of heaven, what do you see? It's a reversal. It's an overturning of what we value. It's an overturning of what Judas valued. It's an overturning of the worldly values. In other words, Christians value what the world looks down on. And they're skeptical of what the world upholds, what the world values. Things that the world puts at the top of the list, Christians put at the bottom of the list. In fact, they're skeptical of these things. What do we mean by that? The world values power and wealth. The world values popularity. What does God value? Weakness. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. You're blessed if you're hungry. You're blessed if you're weeping. You're blessed if you're excluded or rejected. You're blessed if you're suffering. You're blessed if you're weak. It's a complete overturning of the world's values. The world's values seem natural, but Jesus' approach seems counter natural, counterintuitive, supernatural. You look at Jesus' values and you say, well, gosh, I mean, valuing poverty, valuing hunger, valuing weeping, I mean, that sounds a little unhealthy, kind of almost impossible, at the least, extremely difficult. We're often skeptical of Jesus' values. The world is always skeptical of Jesus' values. And we tend to value and embrace the things that the world values and embraces. And that's the point. Verse 47, in John's gospel, elaborates that when the men seized Jesus to arrest him, it says in this passage that one of his disciples struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. We learn in the the gospel according to John that it was Peter who struck that servant and cut off his ear. Peter was a disciple of Jesus. Peter knows about God's kingdom. Peter's been taught and led by Jesus for over three years, but as soon as he's confronted with swords, what happens? He naturally Impulsively, instinctively draws his sword. There it is. Power. Fight power with power. Fight might with might. That's what happens. But then Jesus says, verse 49, the scriptures must be fulfilled. What does he mean? He's talking about these previous passages. Just before this narrative, throughout maybe the past several passages, Jesus says, I will be betrayed. I'm going to be mocked. The sheep will be scattered. The shepherd is going to be struck down. My blood, here's my blood. It's going to be poured out for you. Here's my body. It's going to be broken for you. Now, think about this. The world says this, my advancement. The world is all about my advancement at your cost. My advancement at other people's cost. But Jesus says this, you will advance at my cost. This is my blood poured out for you. This is my body. It will be broken for you. So Jesus says, I'm going to be a servant. I'm going to give up my wealth. I'm going to sacrifice my life. I'm going to give up my status. I'm going to give up my reputation. I'm going to die, and it's going to change everything. It's going to change the world, and it has. There's a secular Irish scholar, philosopher, W.E.H. Lecky. W.E.H. Lecky says this, The character of Jesus it has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the longest incentive in its practice. The character of Jesus has exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that a simple record of three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. In other words, what Leckie is saying is this. Secular historian, secular philosopher says this. Jesus' revolution has changed the world So much that in three years of active service, Jesus did more to regenerate and soften mankind than the sum total, the sum total of the world's philosophers and moralists. But it's difficult to live this life. On one hand, it changes the world. But on the other hand, it's difficult to live this way of life. On one hand, Jesus says, I'm calling you to live this way. I'm going to empower you to live this way. On the other hand, like Peter, we struggle to live this way, right? We're all like Peter. Peter lived with Jesus, taught by Jesus, followed Jesus. The moment he sees the crowd with a sword, draws the sword. That's us, isn't it? What's he doing? He wants to live Jesus' reality. But as soon as he sees the sword, he starts to live Judas' reality. You see that? That's us. We're naturally inclined to Jesus' reality. That's us. We see the gospel. We love Jesus. We want to follow Jesus. And then something happens in our lives and automatically, instinctively, we draw the sword. We go with our natural impulses. Like Peter, we always try to follow God's kingdom while at the same time we're holding onto the sword. We're clutching onto the sword. You see that? We keep it in our holsters. We're holding on to the sword. We're holding on to our wealth and our power, success. Those are the things we really value. That's us. So we say we follow Jesus, but really we live just like Judas. Now, what does it mean to value weakness? What does it mean to value brokenness? One, it means that when you see weak people, when you see rejected people, you value them. You love them. We sacrifice for them. We invite them. We befriend them. You don't condescend on them. You don't look down on them. You don't show indifference to them. But two, if you start to do that, you're going to agree with me. When you start to do that, you become like that. I'm going to give you some examples. It's flu season right now. Your child is sick. The more you care for that sick child, Because that child should be quarantined. That child should be put away. But the more you care for that child, what's going to happen? You're risking. You're going to get sick. You're going to get... That that sickness, that disease comes on you. Right? I'm going to give you another example. A bit more poignant example. Think about social circles. In high school... The more you get close to somebody who's outcast, the more you get close to somebody who's unattractive, the more you get close to somebody who's unpopular, pretty much happens in any circle that we're in, even now, there's a great deal of certainty, the more you hang out with people who are excluded, there's a great deal of certainty that their social disease will then transfer over to you. In In the same way, you cannot get involved with somebody who's hurting without you being emotionally drained. In the same way, you can't get involved with someone who's financially hurting without in some way, if you really care for them, without in some way your finances being drained to some degree, if you care. If you invest in somebody with a bad reputation, there is no doubt, there's a great deal of certainty that that will impact your reputation. If the things that are valued by the world are not at the top of your list, what happens? Why would you do that? It's because you're free. Because the things that the world values are not at the top of your list. Those things don't have any control over you anymore. You see that? If you understand what Jesus has done for you, you're free. You're completely free. Free to live as you have been designed to live by God. Free to live as you are called to by your creator. You're free to live in the real reality of the kingdom of God. Take two people. They both have great jobs. They both have outstanding jobs. But both of them are about to lose their jobs in a way that their careers are going to be unrecoverable. And so it's going to change their income. It's certainly going to change the way their coworkers look at them. Maybe they made a big mistake or maybe something happened, some sacrifice that they made, but it costed them. It's definitely going to change the way they live their lifestyles. It's going to change their reputation socially. It's going to change their reputation definitely among their coworkers. No matter what you say you believe, if you live based on the kingdom of the world, you're going to act. You're going to behave like your world is over. You're going to be frantic. Do you know that there's a a Pulitzer Prize-winning author uh, who wrote uh, a book called The Denial of Death? That's Ernest Becker. Ernest Becker won the Pulitzer Prize. His seminal piece of work was denial of death. And basically what he asserts there is that mankind, because we believe that there's nothing after, we are frantically living our lives to save ourselves today, right now. And we are frantic. That is why there's such a great deal of depression and anxiety and crime in the world. He says all all our social pathologies are based on the fact that we don't see the end point. We don't trust what's there, what God promises us at the end. And as a result, we are living our lives frenetically, frantically right now. No matter what you say you believe, if you are living your life in the heart, based on the kingdom of the world, you will live your life frantically, in anxiety, in anger, possibly in depression. You will live like your life is over. Because your identity, it's based on wealth and status and power. And you've just lost wealth. you just lost status. you just lost power it's all gone. And because it's gone, those things that made you feel alive, those things that were your reality, because those things are gone, there's no more reality, which means you're not real. You're not real anymore. Life is no longer real. You see that? And since wealth and money and power, that's your reality because it's gone, you're gone. Do you see that? Most of the real things in our lives we're going to struggle to keep so that we can keep our place. You're going to work hard. You're going to work day and night. You're going to neglect all the good things, the truly real things in your life to keep these things. You're going to neglect your integrity. You're going to neglect your character. It's going to come at a cost to your family. It's going to come at a cost to your friends. But if your values are shaped by the gospel, If your values are shaped by the gospel, if your values are shaped by by Jesus' values, you are in the kingdom of God. You know that life is going to be suffering. You know that life is not easy. You know you have no control over the world or over your life. And so you're going to feel weak. There are going to be grave moments of weakness in your life, but you're also going to know that God's power is made perfect through weakness. God's power is made perfect through weakness. That means that God's power... If it's made perfect through your weakness, through your weakness, God's power becomes more real. You see that? What does that mean? That means that, ah, you see, true wisdom will say that although I am suffering today, this, even this, because it cannot ultimately ruin me because I am a citizen of God's kingdom. I am in Christ. I have a life in Christ. That is my ultimate reality because I trust that, because I know that. This is just another opportunity in which my wisdom will grow, my compassion will grow, my view of the world will grow. It will shape me. It will help me to see. It will challenge what you really value in life. When you experience great loss, the first thing it does, is the reason why it's great loss, the reason why you weep and mourn is because you recognize that something you valued has just been lost. It's going to challenge what you really value. Your real identity. A Christian says wealth and reputation, status, glory. None of these things are bad things. I can have these things. I can enjoy these things. But I can walk away from these things. If you know you're a sinner saved by God's sheer grace, what does the psalmist say in Psalm 73? You know what he says? Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In other words, God's grace works in you through plenty, through want, in sickness, in health the sword is gone you've put away the sword when you put away the sword you're putting away your self-justification you're putting away you're putting away your anger you're putting away the blame shifting you're putting away the grumbling you're putting away the anxiety the fight is gone the resistance to God is gone you're going to work I mean we have to work but you're not going to be a slave to your work you see Now, everyone's got seasons of work, right? Med students, residents, people who are going through their terms in grad school, seasons of work. But you can firmly believe that, hey, these seasons come to an end and I can walk away if I need to. You can do that. So a Christian, because he values what God values, a Christian can say, yes, I can lose my wealth I can, I can suffer. I may even be taken advantage of. I may be excluded in some circles. I may be mocked by certain people. But I've chosen that. I've chosen that because I've decided to follow Christ. And real influence, real power comes when you put, when you put your value of others, when you put the interest of others over yourself, ahead of your own. When you take their place, that's what happens. That's called sacrifice. That makes you a winsome person. The difference between Judas and Peter, I mean, we could talk about a lot of differences between Judas and Peter. But Judas and Peter, they were both disciples of Christ. They lived with Jesus, ate with Jesus, learned from Jesus. They walked with Jesus, performed miracles with Jesus. The main difference between Judas and Peter is that Judas, there was no struggle in drawing the sword. The sword owned him. The sword drew him. Peter, there's a struggle. There's a battle in the heart. He wants to follow Jesus. He loves Jesus. Draws the sword at the same time. The struggle is there. If you're experiencing a struggle, if there's any struggle, you know why there's a struggle in your life? Because naturally, our natural instincts, there's no struggle. If something comes natural to you, there's no struggle. Right? If there's a struggle, if there's a battle in your heart, that means God is present in your life. God is working in your life. Through Peter, we see Jesus' reality, Jesus' values, Jesus' kingdom. And we see the struggle, how difficult it is to live that kind of life. Now, where do you get the power then to live this kind of life? How do you do it? How do you get into this kind of a life? Verse 50 you learn everybody deserts Jesus. Everybody runs away. Everybody flees. In fact, it's kind of funny because the passage ends with this young man, this poor guy. Um, He was a follower of Jesus, but he was so cowardly and he tried to save himself so badly that when they seized him, he was willing to run away. He basically squirmed out of his clothes. They grabbed him by his clothes. So he squirmed out of his clothes and ran away naked naked. That's what what this passage said. This man will forever be known as that guy that ran away naked to save himself, right, into the streets. Now, remember this, because clearly uh, Mark wasn't putting this in here to make us laugh, right? Nakedness in the Bible always represents shame. And it makes sense because this man, he was a shameful coward. He was doing a very shameful thing. But why is that story there? To cap off this passage, why is it there? Number one, Mark is not telling you a fictional story, a fictional account. This is news. This happened. That's why it's there. Number two, there's this very old traditional understanding. Scholars will tell you that there's a more than likely chance that this man was actually Mark himself. That's what traditionally a lot of people believe that. It's Mark's way of saying, That was me. I was there. And I'm no different than Peter or Judas or anybody else that night that failed Jesus. But really, in the end, we don't know who it was. We don't know who it was. But think about this here's this young man, naked, runs out of the garden. He fails the test of courage. He fails the test and he betrays Jesus. He tries to save himself. He leaves the garden in shame. Does that remind you of anything? Because Mark is actually trying to remind us of another garden. Way back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis, there's another garden. There's another garden, another test. In this garden, everyone fails Jesus. Everyone fails God. And they leave in shame. But in Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, a man was given a test. And he failed. And when he failed, he saw his own shame. He saw that he was naked. And he hides from God in shame. So in a sense, this man is a reminder, is a microcosm. What Mark is trying to show is that this man is a reminder that we all betray. We all live in shame. We've all failed God. We all failed Jesus. We betray him daily. In shame, we hide from God because of our sin. Ah, but, but. There was one person in the garden who passed the test. There was one man in this garden that passed and his test was infinitely greater, ultimately greater. Why'd these people run? They were afraid. They were afraid of the sword. They were afraid of the clubs, right? They were afraid of death. But Jesus Christ, look at his poise here. Do you see him freaking out? Do you see him anxious in this passage? Last week, The narrative that we showed, it was the passage right before this. It was the narrative really right before this. Jesus is just falling apart. Jesus is sweating drops of blood on the ground. Jesus is in anguish so much that an angel had to come and strengthen him. But notice here, immediately after, when the people actually came to arrest him, he's calm. Look at the poise of Jesus. Look at the resilience of Jesus. Look at the strength of Jesus. Look at the restraint. I mean, he could have wiped everyone out. Look at the restraint of Jesus. Look at the grace of Jesus. Why did he do it? Why was he so resilient? Why was he so poised? Why was he so calm? Because last week, he was falling apart. Why is he so calm here? It's because we know, at least now, that Jesus was about to face something even worse than those swords and clubs. In the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve left, they were naked, they left. What was placed at the entrance of the garden? It was a sword, a flaming sword, guarded by by angels. In other words, it was God's way of saying, You will never be able to get back into the garden on your own, you will die by the sword. You will never on your own ever, all our lives we will now work to try to get back into the garden. That's where peace was. That's where the presence of God is. That's where uh, pleasure and, and ultimate joy and delight and thrill, of the thrill of knowing God and being in God, that was all there in the garden, what we call the shalom peace of heaven. It was in the garden of Eden and yet Adam and Eve, gone, naked, in shame because they failed to test. And so God places this flaming sword there. It's his way of saying, we will, for the rest of our lives, work our way. We're going to try to work our way every time you work to build that wealth, every time you want to build that perfect family, that perfect home. You know what you're trying to do? You're trying to get back in the garden on your own without God. That's what you're doing. And God said, you will go through the sword. Lest you go through the sword and die, you will not get back in. You cannot. You cannot. And that's why we're dying in our work. That's why we are slaving over our work. That's why we are dying in anxiety. We are trying to get back into the garden on our own. And God said, you will die trying to get in. God places a sword there. The sword, again, represents what? The kingdom authority, the justice of God. We're trying to get back into the presence of God only to be met by the justice of God. That's because of our sin. Jesus' disciples, when they saw the world's sword, they fled, even though it was a smaller sword. It was a lesser sword. That's us. We're using swords. We're fearing swords. We're fleeing from swords constantly. But Jesus in the garden, he's about to face the ultimate sword. The ultimate sword of God's ultimate justice is about to come down on him. And what does he do? He stands firm and he stands fast for you. That's what he does. If you see Jesus in a very impersonal way, kind of like the way we look at Mother Teresa, you know, if you guys know Mother Teresa, for many, many decades living in a foreign country among the leprous and the poverty, Mother Teresa, if you look at Jesus in an impersonal way, much like Mother Teresa, helping the poor, helping the sick, you're going to say, that's an amazing thing, but impossible for me. That's what you'll say. I can't do that. And you're right. Because when you see examples like that, and if you see Jesus as just an example, you yourself will feel guilty, you will feel crushed. But if you see Jesus Christ in a personal way, if you see Jesus Christ taking your place, you're the sick one. You're that diseased, excluded outcast. And Jesus Christ has come near to you, communing with you, demonstrating love and faithfulness and care to you. That social disease, really it goes deeper than that because we call that imputation. Your sin becomes transferred to Christ and his righteousness and glory is transferred to you. That's what happens on the cross. That's the significance of Good Friday. If you place your trust in Jesus Christ, what's happening is in that moment, your sin and your unfaithfulness and your cowardice All your unrighteousness is transferred. The theological term for that is imputation. It's imputed to Christ. And Jesus' righteousness and faithfulness and goodness is transferred to you as if you never sinned, as if you always obeyed. That's what it means to be justified. That's what happened. That's what happens on the cross. If you see Jesus taking your place, a personal thing, He came to be your substitute, not a religious leader, not a moral example, not a good teacher, not a good person. That's impersonal. If you see Jesus Christ in a personal way, and if you say, yes, I'm willing to place my faith in what Christ has done for me on the cross, in Jesus Christ, his person, he has come to be your substitute. That's going to save you. That's going to transform you. You look in this passage, everybody else got free. Jesus got caught. Everybody else got away. Jesus got arrested. Everybody else had no control. Jesus Christ, ultimate authority, ultimate control, and yet he surrenders. He submits. You see that? Everybody else in the garden failed. Jesus Christ passed. So everybody else deserved to die, yet Jesus died. You value money? Look to this. Look to Christ. Jesus Christ gave up the inheritance of the kingdom of God, and the king came down so that you would have the inheritance of God. You could be called heirs of God. You value power? On the cross, Jesus Christ became ultimately weak. Ultimately weak. Why? So you would have ultimate power. You could have this power. You value beauty. You value status. You value reputation. Jesus Christ became so beaten up, unrecognizable as a man, and he was forsaken by God. Talk about losing status. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was stripped naked, beaten and faced the pounding wrath Of God on the cross. He had every reason to flee. He had every reason to fear. He had every reason to come with his own sword. But he stood defenseless and became weak and faced the ultimate justice of the wrath of God. Why? So you could become God's crown. So that you would be the one that he would delight in. So that you would be acceptable and beautiful to God. You value being included. Jesus Christ said, I am forsaken. Cast out, left for dead, disowned. Why? So that you could be God's son. There's the status you need. There's the wealth you need. There's the love that you've been working to find and to get all your life. You do it apart from God, you face the sword. But if you see that Jesus Christ took the ultimate sword on your behalf, that will save you. You will experience a love, the love that you've been looking for all your life. This is what you need to treasure. This is who you need to treasure. You need to treasure God's son, Jesus Christ. It's going to shape how you look at your wealth. It's going to shape how you look at your status. It's going to shape how you look at your reputations. It's going to shape how you look about at being included, being in. In a way, we all, every one of us, we kind of have two lifestyles. You have two bank accounts, for instance. One is always depleting. The other is ever-increasing. Do you understand that? One, you're constantly working to replenish and it's always depleting. The other, you've done nothing. You've received it as an inheritance. You are an heir as God's son and it's ever increasing, abundantly overflowing. God doesn't just give you just enough. He is overflowing in abundance with his love and his grace. Surely will he take care of you? Surely he will take care of his people. That's why Jesus says, do not worry. It's not a command. It's his way of saying, trust me. In a way, we all have two reputations. We have two positions, two statuses. If you focus only on one, it's going to show, especially when uh, one decreases sharply or unexpectedly. But the kingdom of God is always abundant, ever-growing, ever-increasing, even if you're poor, so much that even if you're poor, you will never feel poor. There is power. There is the source of your resilience. You can endure any of the lesser swords in life if you see that Jesus faced the ultimate sword, the only sword that can truly ruin you and end your life. Do you see that? Look to Jesus Christ. He took your place. He took the justice that we deserved. And if you look to Jesus Christ, who took our place, took the justice that we deserved, that will fill you with a power and a courage because you know that you are no longer naked. You are covered in his blood. You are covered in his righteousness. And so he took the sword. He was stripped naked in shame for you so that you can live free. Do you trust it? Let's pray.